In central Australia, you'll find Ayers Rock, the iconic red monolith that's the country's well-known landmark. Just 60 miles east of that famous site, you'll also find the Curtin Springs Station. In Australia, ranches are called stations, and this one's over 1 million acres in size. Andrew McRae visits with Lindy Severin, who along with her husband and father-in-law own and manage their cattle herd. Why don't we start maybe with the history of this ranch? I think, does it go back to 1936 and you had an Irishman come here and then eventually he gets to the Severn family, is that right? Yeah, the, um, my husband's father and his, and his wife, Ash's mum and dad, came out in 1956 to take over the station from the Andrews family. Uh, and the Andrews family had had it for a number of years before that, but uh, financially they were struggling, and uh, Pete, and uh, Pete and Dawn got to take over the station for the value of the debts in 1956. So the Severin family's been here now for almost 60 years. And I think I read online the first year there weren't too many folks that came through here. <laughs> well, at that point, Ayers Rock didn't exist as a tourist destination, so Curtin Springs was the end of the road. Uh, technically the end of the road. So in the first year that Pete and Dawn were here, six people drove down the road. Although second year there was a 50% increase and nine people drove down the road. Well, when did, at what point did Ayers Rock become, did you begin to see a lot of tourist traffic come through here then? That was in the late, the very late part of the 50s when there was a gentleman um, in Alice Springs who believed that people would come and see the rock. So he started running buses out uh, and he would uh, pick up water from here and take it out to Ayers Rock because there was no permanent water out at Ayers Rock. So all of the water for the early human use and then building and construction out at Ayers Rock all came from Curtin Springs. So ultimately Pete and Dawn said to, the, to him, why don't we make your guys a cup of tea and a sandwich? And that was the start of the tourist side of our business. And Curtin Springs was the first wayside inn or tourist stop developed outside Alice Springs. So that was in that only started in the very late part of the 50s um, and built from there. So Pete and Dawn were here before the tourists were. Okay. Well, I'm certainly going to visit quite a bit about the ranch, but since you mentioned tourism, let it talk about, I mean, from, from Alice through here, there aren't too many places where you can get something to eat and fuel and so forth. No, well, it's, we're 360 kilometers from Alice Springs, and there's only three other stops before you get to us. Uh, and most of those stops were developed in the early years by the people who had the stations because they were already offering, most of them were already offering hospitality services to visitors. You know, somebody who drives down the road and knocks on the door, then yes, you're going to make them a cup of tea. And as the tourist industry started to develop, the need for those services increased. So those stops were all developed from the people on the land who were already living there. They don't always, they're still not all owned by the stations as we are, uh, but that's how they developed. Uh, and they were developed a long time before the resorts and the national parks and, and you know, the big flashy stuff was developed now. Sure, sure. So here at Curtin Springs, we've got 27 accommodation rooms and a campground and petrol and a store and, and bar uh, and a restaurant. And then we also have to have all of the things, at the back of house services. So we have to provide all of our own essential services, generate all of our own power, house all of our staff, they all have to live on site, uh, deal with all of our own water and waste, have things like commercial laundry, because I can't send our linen away and hope that it comes back in a bag all nicely clean and folded up. So we're all completely self-contained. 
and what we hope is that we give visitors an opportunity to be able to ask the questions and get them answered about, well, what does it take to live in this environment and raise a family here and run a business here? And that Central Australia has got an awful lot to offer. There's a, a you know, very intensive production um, system in Central Australia around cattle primarily. Uh, so tourism isn't the only product mm-hmm. that we've got to sell. And we like to be able to give people a, a window into uh, our lives in this part of the world. Right, right. You have to produce all your own electricity here, is that right? Generators, and then you have your own well bores or what we call wells and everything. So we don't, on Curtin Springs, we don't have any naturally occurring surface water. We don't have any perm. It'll lay on the surface after it's rained a little bit, and we've got a bit of cloud today, and we're hoping there will be a bit of rain. Uh, but all of the water, the rest of the water is what we call man-made. So 119 boreholes sunk on the property over the years. Only 14 sites are usable. We only had a handful where we didn't strike water. The rest were too salty. We've got some bores that are four and five times saltier than the sea. So our shallowest usable water is at nine feet. Our deepest is over 400 feet. Our best flow rate is four and a half thousand gallons an hour. Our average is less than a thousand. So it's enough to fill tanks. So we pump from underground. We don't. The water doesn't come to the surface on its own. We have to mechanically raise it to the surface uh, and into tanks, which we then you. Uh, use for storage to then pump out to the cattle or for ourselves to use. Sure, sure. Talk about the ranch for a moment. How how big of a ranch and uh, and, and how does that, because to, to us this is huge, but it's not even in the top ten, I don't think, of ranches in the in Australia. The station is 1,028,960 acres. So just over a million acres. Uh, 1,600 square mile, 416,000 hectares, or 100 kilometres long and 40 kilometres wide. And we are slightly larger than average um, in the Northern Territory. And in Central Australia, the the stations are still tended to be family-owned, so we don't have a big corporate structure. In the northern part of the Territory, then yes, that's true. But in Central Australia, they tend to be all family, individually family-owned. So no, it's certainly not the biggest, uh, but we're not the smallest. Uh, And you actually need this amount of country to run a production cycle. So we... And although it's only an average and the different land types can carry different uh, different number of animals, we work on about 250 acres per head. Um, and you need that amount of country to be able to have the feed available to feed them. Sure, sure. The, the ranch here, how, how, about how many head can it support then? You said the 250 or so, but I know that fluctuates quite a bit over time. Our perfect number is about 5,000. You know, the, the government says that our perfect number is just over four, uh, but we think we can run a little bit more than that. Currently, we're only running about three, uh, so we've still got a little bit of capacity up our sleeve. In a good season, you can run more than that, uh, but we only have a good season, we only have a good rain season every seven to ten years. So we would rather run a lower number of animals that we don't have to chop and change during the rain cycle. And we... Uh, we have to work on the basis that every last, the last rainfall event, so the 11 mil that we got in the rain gauge last week, not the one that could come next week, last week, using our head, 
that is the last rain that we're going to get for a decade. So that's how we do all of our planning. Our heart might say it would be nice to get some more and we're hoping that we get some more. But our head always says that that last rain is the last one we're going to get for a decade. So we tend to run a conservative number of animals, uh, which we believe is better for the landscape and the environment. And at the end of the day, the management and the care of the land is our greatest responsibility. And you don't get to still be running a grazing enterprise almost 60 years later if the land is anything but your highest priority. Sure, sure. Uh, talk about what uh, kind of cattle you run and, and why uh, you've, that, that breed or different breeds have been best, I guess, for this area. Okay. In Central Australia, we're below the tick line. Uh, if you are above the tick line, then you must run the Brahmin cattle, uh, the ones with the big humps on their neck, uh, because they have a level of tick resistance. In Central Australia, we don't have to. Uh, so we run British breed cattle, uh, and most of Central Australia does that. There's a lot of Angus and Hereford and Shorthorn in the region. We have two parts of the herd. We have the bush herd, which is a composite herd, which is just a mixture of everything that we've had over the years. But the bulls that we can control are Murray Grey bulls, which is, are an Australian breed. And then we've got a Murray Grey herd with cows and, and bulls. And ultimately, we will transfer them all over to Murray Greys. We're the only ones in Central Australia running Murray Greys. Uh, we don't think that's going to be the case for much longer. Uh, the breed does extremely well up here. Very placid, very calm. And that's a trait that's increasingly being looked for at the consumer level and the, and the processing level. They want an animal that's not flighty and jittery and using a lot of energy. Small head, lower birth weight. And out here, we don't assist calving. If she can't carve on her own, we don't want her or her daughter's genetics. They're happy to walk, and out here they have to walk to get something to eat and to drink. The Murray Greys are considered to be very good mothers, and they will allow another calf to drink. And again, that's important because we don't hand-raise calves. So if the calf can't find somebody to give it a drink, and the cow won't let somebody else give it a drink, we don't want those genetics and at the end of the day we run the bulls with the cows all year uh, we don't try and define a calving season because we're not arrogant enough to know what mother nature is going to be doing in 12 months time or nine months time which is the gestation so we want the cows to be falling pregnant whenever they cycle so the bulls run with the cows all the time and we want the bulls concentrating then on the cows so, uh, and not just fighting with each other. So the greys are considered to be very good calf getters. So you can actually run less number of bulls and more cows and still get the name, same number of calves uh, if you would like. So Sure. When you have calves then, you know, in the U.S. we think about, well, they, they'll be taking care of those calves and castrate, get vaccinations and so forth. How long might it be before you ever bring those calves in to, to castrate or do anything like that with them? In Central Australia, because we don't have the monsoonal influence of, of the northern part of Australia, we actually work cattle all year. So uh, we don't work them every day, but you're working them regularly all year. So in a perfect world, we would like to have our calves marked and branded by the time they're a month old. But that doesn't always work, and you would certainly expect to have most of them done by the time they're, they're six months Sometimes if it's been raining and our mustering is based on providing all of the water in the yards, 
uh, so that the cattle have to walk in through a one-way set of gates to get the water, and there's no other water, so that's the only thing they've got. But if it's raining and there's nice fresh rainwater laying out on the clay um, pans, then they'll be watering out there and not coming into the yard. So after we've had a lot of rain, it can take some time before the animals start to come back into the yard. So that can make it a bit longer. Yeah. Answer, the short answer is we like to do it as soon as possible. Sure. But we don't set a definite date on that. Well, and, and people will be interested. You, 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 know, you don't use horses or anything like that. Maybe describe what you call your yard and the, the process for, for gathering and so forth. So we pump the water from underground into a tank, and from the tank the water goes for the cattle into the trough. And all of the troughs sit inside the cattle yards. So the cows have to walk through a one-way gate... Same concept as going into the supermarket where they let you walk in one way but you can't actually walk out that gate. It's exactly the same. So the traps are a very simple system. You've got a door frame uh, that's actually smaller than a domestic house door and down the side of it you've got four or five arms that we call traps and bayonets. Simple mechanical system, a six-inch piece of pipe with a right-angle piece of pipe sitting in it, and they sit slightly downwards so that gravity does the job, and they sit closed. So when you look at them, they look like four or five fingers that are interlaced, uh, like you were maybe praying. So the cow has to push against that and open it up. The fingers run down their body and close behind them. They can't get back out that way. The out trap faces the other direction. So they walk in through one gate to get the drink and they walk out through another gate. So when we want to muster, all we do is block off the out gate. So they still walk in to get a drink, uh, but they don't have, they can't get out of the yards. Now, cows don't need to drink every day. As a rule of thumb, horses like to drink every day. Cows don't need to drink every day. They would like to drink every week. So you never get all of your animals together in one go. So, and that's part of the reason why we work the yards all year, so that you're just ticking away at the numbers um, all year. Because you, anybody who says in this country that they know how, exactly how many cows they've got are lying because you can't possibly know. We can't stand at the kitchen window and count off Bessie and Daisy and Flo. Um, we can't see them. Um, they could be 100 kilometres away. So it's about... Uh, we, t- we think about it as managing for the herd. Uh, so we try and do the best that we can for the majority of animals. We don't necessarily manage to the individual animal, uh, which is quite different to your maybe dairy circumstances or your intensive grazing and even in the feedlot situations. So we're about doing the best that we can for the entire group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes that means the individual animal um, doesn't cope uh, or needs to be destroyed or needs to be culled. Um, and that's about allowing the best genetics that we can possibly use in this environment to thrive. Sure. Out of that, out of this entire ranch and the, the million-plus acres, are animals running on all of those acres at all the time? Because you mentioned you have some different paddocks. Or do, you, do you move from one to the other or how do you, how do you graze them? We've got 22 different land types on the station and we've got 100 kilometres length. So what's happening on one part of the station is not necessarily the same as what's happening everywhere else. And there are some country types that are more fragile, that are very good when there's been some rain, 
but don't hold up as well after the rain has stopped. So we tend to use uh, the water and water in dams, for example, as a guideline in, in those countries. If the water is dry in the dams, then, then the cattle move off. Uh, and they will often move on their own to where there's more structured water. They know where it is, um, and we don't. So in the early years, we used to physically move them. We don't tend to do that now. The animals will go, oh, we're running out of water here. We'd better go somewhere else. Um, Where there are paddocks, we monitor the condition of the animals and the condition of the feed, uh, and we'll move animals as we need. When we rest country... We tend to rest country for periods of years rather than months because you actually need sometimes two grain cycles to allow the country to regenerate. We rely entirely on native grasses. So, and the seed for that grass is inside the soil. So not every rainfall event is going to put in new seed. It's not going to replenish seed into the seed bank. So sometimes you'll get a lot of germination, you'll have little showers of rain, you'll get a lot of germination, but you actually don't get any maturity in the plant. So to allow that to happen and to replenish the seed bank, you actually need to leave that country alone sometimes for a decade. So there are some parts of the station where we haven't had very many stock um, for 10 years. And we're at in the process now of um, at changing that and starting to bring some of those areas into production, and we'll take some other areas out. But that you know, all of that depends on the rain uh, and the seasons, and whether there's been fires. Um, you know, all of that stuff. They're all parts of the puzzle. Well, and you will have fires here, but the way I understand it, it's not a, a blaze that moves fast. It's more of a smolder. Or will it, it just depend? That depends. It depends. Okay. Uh, that seven-year rain cycle, um, when you get a, a seven to ten-year rain cycle, when you get a good season, you get a lot of grass on the ground, and a lot of our grass varieties are very flammable. The Spinifex, for example, has a very high resin content, and it burns uh, like the the smoke looks like you're burning tires. It burns black, and it's one of the hottest fires on the face of the earth. So uh, you will have both. Uh, what you're hoping is that you manage the landscape and sometimes create your own fire to create areas uh, where you can break up a big fire where it doesn't come through really hot. Uh, 18 months ago, uh, we had a very big fire here uh, that was started deliberately on the highway and it moved 50 kilometres in one afternoon. Uh, That was a very big hot fire. So in a perfect world, you want little fires burning slowly and under your control. Uh, that's not always possible. Talk about how, uh, how and when you sell, because that can happen several times or it may not happen may, maybe in a year. Uh, that's often based on the bank manager's demands. So we, uh, because we're running a conservative number of animals on the property and because we have such diverse land types, we can often hold animals for quite a long time and not be forced to sell them. 
we would prefer to hold on to an animal than sell it at below what we think it's worth. Uh, so we will sell directly to the, uh, the abattoirs or the slaughterhouses for animals that are finished or in good condition. Uh, and increasingly, we will sell into the Australian feedlots. So there's quite a lot of feedlots in southern Australia and New South Wales and Victoria and South Australia, and they will buy a younger animal uh, to finish it on grain to go to slaughter. So we sell into both of those. We our preference probably would to be to sell older animals that are finished. Um, both Ash and Pete firmly believe that an animal that is older when you slaughter it, particularly when it's only ever been fed uh, open rangeland grass, tastes better. You might need to chew it a couple more times, but it's going to taste an awful lot better. So we will always have older animals on the property. And part of that is because that's how we personally prefer to eat our meat and how we would like people to eat the animals coming from our property. But the other part is that if we sold all of our animals at um, six or seven um, or even younger, which is absolutely the right thing to do in an intensive grazing situation or a dairy herd where after a magic number and age, you believe the animal's giving you diminishing returns. So you sell the older one and you buy a younger one. Absolutely the right thing to do in intensive grazing. If we did that, it could be that we do not have a single animal who knows what to do when it rains. So who doesn't know where the first green pick is or the last green pick. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of pressure being put on the extensive grazing systems about saying... The value of your animals is based on how many live weaners she will produce. Not necessarily live calves, because some cows will walk away from a calf. How many she's raised to a point where you can take the animal and wean it. That's certainly important, but we actually think the, another part of that is whether that animal has got the capacity to keep other animals alive. So a barren cow may actually be keeping 400 young weaners alive because she knows where the first green pick's going to be because we don't stand at the kitchen window and go, ah, today we're going to move 200 cows 200 metres down the road into that next new strip grazing cell. Um, We don't do that. The animals move through the landscape on their own. Our smallest paddock is 60 square kilometres. Um, and in that we can have 10 different land types. So they need to be able to move in their, la- in their landscape and take the best of what Mother Nature's providing. Yeah, yeah. Talk for a moment because it's over our shoulder, Mount Connor. You, have, you know, Ayers Rock gets so much attention, but yet you have such an icon. And I'm sure many people mistake it for Ayers Rock, but it, it, it's... Well, almost as tall, I think, uh, real close and, and even bigger. It is quite a beautiful sight on your on the, on the uh, station here. So yes, that's our mountain. Um, and the reality is that uh, Ayers Rock has been developed around uh, the Aboriginal stories and the Aboriginal capacity um, to to visit Ayers Rock once a generation when there was a good season and there was rain that would hold in the rock pools out at, out at the rock. Mount Connor do- doesn't have that. Mount Connor has no water. So there was no ability for Aboriginal people to visit. 
So that's why, that's the fundamental reason why it hasn't been developed the way. And the fact that it's always been on private property. Uh, Ayers Rock has always been in government reserve or in national park. Mount Connor has always been located on private property. So tours go out to the mountain, which you guys did this morning, uh, and, uh, and we like to share the mountain. Uh, but the reality was there wasn't that Aboriginal influence in the early years that demanded that it moved into the public arena. So Mount Connor, Ayers Rock and the Olgers, which are three different geological formations, are only one degree out of being in a perfectly straight east-west geological line. But there's no Dreamtime story. Um, so there was that Mount Connor never had any influence uh, in the Aboriginal cultures, and the Aboriginal people were very sparse in this area because they couldn't live here because there was no water. Um, so you can only live where there's water. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned the land there. Do, is it right to say you don't own it, but you lease it? perpetually am I saying that right yeah absolutely right in the northern territory uh, all of the pastoral land is actually owned by the government uh, and we are granted pastoral leases Uh, and in the northern territory which is different to other parts of Australia where they have an end date or a time limit our leases are perpetual so there's no it's not a 99 year lease or a 52 year lease in the past that used to be the case but that's no longer the case mm-hmm. so the um we think about and legally we can treat the land um as freehold and we can buy and sell it we don't need to get somebody's permission to do that we can't carve it up so we don't and you need these big areas in Australia or certainly in the territory to be able to run a successful um produ- grazing production so we don't sell the bottom pack you know we can't cut off the bottom paddock if cash flow is tight we can lease it you know we can let somebody else use it for a while but uh, we can't carve up the state and you wouldn't want to you actually need to go bigger not smaller Um, so you wouldn't want to go any smaller than what they are now yeah we should talk for a moment about a topic you're passionate about which are the camels and (laughs) because in the U.S. we certainly have depending on where we are it might be wolves or coyotes or bison and, and so forth here it is camels. Maybe you want to talk for a moment just about how they got here and, and how destructive they can be both in, in eating and, and drinking water and so forth. And you said we only had a few minutes. <laughs> this is our second part of our interview. <laughs> um, we, Curtin Springs is the first grazing um, country that the feral camel population come to. So we are the first fence that the feral population comes to. Just out to the southwest of us is the heaviest density of the feral camel population. They are, they're an amazing animal and they do extremely well in the environment. But the issue is that they're a feral pest. The law says that as landholders, we must control feral pests on our property. So to, do, to meet our legal obligations, we shoot them. To consider whether we could sell them, which is a lot of people um, can be quite nasty and quite abusive back to us when they hear that we're doing that. The reality is that the cost of putting the animal in the yard for someone to buy it, is, is that cost is more than what we would get as an income from it. And they're not domesticated. They, they can use, learn to use the, uh, the water yards like the cows do, 
But to do that, we have to put them in the yard first. So we would need to use helicopters to muster them, to put them into the yards, to train them how to use the water traps. And then it's actually illegal for us to let them out of the yards. If we have a feral animal in our control, it's illegal for us to let them go. So we can't put them in the yards to train them because we'd be breaking the law. And again, the general public misconception is that every feral animal is saleable, that someone would want to buy it. And that's not the case. It's exactly the same as all production cycles. If you're trying to sell a cow or a sheep or a tulip or a rose, the buyer has specifications that they will buy to. And the camels are exactly the same. So they will only, uh, the buyers in the for meat production for uh, to slaughter the camels to use for meat, they have very specific requirements about having aged, well-conditioned, large animals. Uh, so they won't buy the younger females or the juveniles. And so that means that even if we did get them in the yard, we can't sell them. So the damage that the camels do to the environment is huge. They will eat everything. Again, some people say they don't eat grass. Well, that's just a lie. Uh, They'll eat the grass, they'll eat the trees, they'll eat the shrubs, uh, as do cows, but camels do a lot more damage to them while they're doing it. And the issue with the feral populations is that they can move in mobs of thousands. So it's not just about one or two in the environment. And we certainly would never like to see all of the camels gone. Um, they are, you know, there's enough out here for everything to be able to manage in, and survive in a balance. But it's about the overwhelming numbers. Uh, so if you've got a mob of a thousand camels rampaging... Um, they do an awful lot of damage to infrastructure. And for us, that's primarily fences. So to build a fence that keeps a camel out costs about $20,000 a kilometre, as opposed to about $2,000 a kilometre for a fence that we would build for the cows. And if we wanted to do that and have have domesticated camels behind a wire, uh, those animals are only worth $220. So the investment to be able to hold them is so much more than what the value of the animal actually is. They are our biggest management issue. Uh, In 2007, we lost 140 kilometres of fences to feral camels in a six-week period. It took us three and a half years to put them back because we had to completely rebuild the fence. They had damaged the fences so badly that we couldn't fix them. We had to rebuild them. So it took three and a half years to put them back. So three and a half years to build another 140 kilometres of fences that we already had. You know, it wasn't about new fences in new paddocks. It was about just trying to replace what we had. You can't insure against any of that stuff. That all just has to come out of your pocket. So everything that we do, everything that we build, every new um, road that we might put in, every new yard that we build, all of that is designed to be able to deal with the camel impact. It is the biggest issue that we deal with every day. Mm-hmm camel how much can it drink if it decides to drink I was, is it... um the camels will drink uh they don't need to drink as often as as the other animals uh but exactly the same as us if there's water available in a in a dam that's not fenced or something you know they'll they'll drink dozens and dozens of of liters um or gallons of water in one go 
Um, so the camels don't actually store water, they store fat. So their hump is fat, not water, which is what a lot of people think. But that means that they can then go from drink to drink for a lot longer because they've got that energy store. So, um, and they can survive for quite a long time, for months and months and months, uh, in an environment if there's a fair bit of moisture in, in the uh, vegetation. So, uh, yes, they can, uh, you can think about using water to trap them, but unlike a cow that you know has to come in every week, your camel may only come in every three or four months. And you can't hold them, you can't you know, store them and feed them uh, and wait for enough numbers. So purely and, and simply, the numbers don't add up. So to meet our legal obligations to control feral animals on our land, we shoot them. Sure, sure. A couple of questions to wind up. One about vets. We talked about that a little bit. Yeah. A, a veterinarian is a, a long ways away, and therefore you use a vet maybe a little bit different than some people maybe even the U.S. would use a vet. Yeah. So our nearest vet is in Alice Springs, which is 360 kilometres away. Uh, very approachable. You can call in and ask him. Uh, and we tend to use that, I think, as I said earlier, about education. So if we see something that's a bit strange or that we don't understand... Uh, that may have an impact on the larger part of the herd, then he's quite happy for us to send him pictures or send us some information. Uh, We don't get him to come visit. Uh, It would cost us a number of thousands of dollars in travel costs to get him to come visit. Uh, So we, in Central Australia, we are technically disease-free and internal parasite-free. So we don't have those type of issues. We're not sort of worried whether there's, um, there's a bug that everybody might catch and will kill everything. But if we see something a bit strange uh, or that we don't understand, then we will use him to educate ourselves. And as I said earlier, we manage the herd, not necessarily the individual animal. Um, and, you know... That's, that's what he's able to offer, the extensive grazing systems, and we value uh, that expertise. Sure, sure. Despite the remoteness and the many challenges, I'm guessing you are here because y- you love what you do and maybe you love running this and seeing the folks pass through? Um, and I get to wake up next to the most amazing man every day. So uh, you need to have a passion for the land, and I think that's true anywhere in the world. To be a farmer... You have to be passionate about it. You don't do it for the money. Um, and we, at the end of the, we work very hard. Ash and I work extremely hard. We run two 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week businesses. But we balance that by passionate belie- passionately believing that the stewardship and the management of the land is the most important thing that we could do. And we go looking for the good thing. You know, we, we have to find the good thing every day. Uh, and in this inv- and some days it's hard. Some days, you know, you go, what, what are we doing this for? But most days you can find the good thing. And sometimes it's very simple. And that's actually what we do with the grandbabies when they come to visit. You know, the last thing at night time is that they have to sit up on, on Nana's lap and tell her what the good thing was today. And that means the list of good things. Uh, and uh, as out of the mouths of babes uh, one of the grandsons last year he'd been out in the cattle yards with us all day and we'd been out for a few days what was the best thing today Maddie oh no no the best thing was being able to climb up onto the top of the cattle yards so climb up on the rails 
and pull my pants down and do a bush wee while I was standing on the top of the yards. <laughs> Only a boy could do that. Um, or what's the best thing today, Emma Daisy? Or being able to go to sleep, Nana, I am just exhausted. So uh, sometimes it is about, you know, we're sitting here looking at the mountains. We've got a cloud full of sky, um, a sky full of clouds, which is not something that we see very often. We're hoping for a little bit of rain. Um, We've got a lot of bird life around at the moment. And there's actually some sultana cake left for me from morning tea. So I might be able to go and have a piece of cake. So, you know, you have to go find the good thing. And we, you know, we spend a lot of time looking at what the ants are doing, what flowers are out, you know, where we've got grass growing, you know, what the animals are doing, um, what birds we've seen today. You know, we keep detailed records of what what are the different birds that we see on the station and where we see them. Um, And that's fascinating. And if you can't find the good thing in that stuff, then you shouldn't be here. Sure. Why don't I wind up with this? You mentioned that amazing man, and I've heard a story that you were married on top of Mount Connor. Is that right? Yes, it is. We've been together for a very long time, but uh, we never actually got married. And Ash was very ill uh, a few years ago. And when I had him chained to an intensive care bed, um, I said, now is probably the time. So I said, why don't we get married? Because we'd always talked about getting married on the top of the mountain, just taking a celebrant up and just us getting married. Because if we got married here, we'd have to do all the work. Um, and nobody would forgive us if we got married anywhere else. So, uh, so I said, why don't we take some people up to the top of the mountain, just the important people, the people that are family or should be family, and up onto the top of the mountain. And he said, do you know how much that's going to cost us? And I said, but we'll make them all bring their own swags and we'll take them out to one of the, one of the boars and we'll give them a barbecue with a sausage and a bread and, and some tomato sauce. So it won't cost us very much at all. So, yes, we got married on the top of the mountain um, a few years ago with 50 uh, of the most important people in our lives. And uh, that, that was pretty special. And you flew a hel- you fly a helicopter? We up? flew helicopters up. Um, uh, we had two helicopters that, that moved people from the base of the mountain up to the top. And uh, the helicopter guys did a really amazing job of scaring the daylights out of all of the kids and all of the adults as they dropped off the mountain when we were finished. So uh, from where we were married, you can see... Um, all the way up to the north of the station, through the salt lakes, through the big dams. Um, we can see the outlines of the paddocks and the roads. So we thought that that was uh, 